In our last episode, we spoke with developer Scott Shapiro. Scott shared why he loves development and how he does it, partnering with local investors to preserve and protect cool local restaurants, nightclub, office buildings, and whatnot, as well as workforce housing. Scott's a local person finding small-scale solutions that are attractive and make our neighborhoods better to places to live and visit. At the end of the discussion, Scott mentioned that he was heading out to Nashville, Tennessee for his next project, mostly because the city of Seattle's legislative environment made it too expensive to develop here. He gave as an example a housing development near the Columbia City Light Rail Station. Delays have cost him about four years, which will be reflected in more expensive rents for those who eventually move in. And it's also shredding away any potential profit that investors might have had who actually funded the project from the beginning. Today, we get to talk with someone who is not a developer, but an advocate for more development, Roger Valdez, an affordable housing activist who, for the past 20 years, has been involved in public policy in various areas, such as education, health, and housing. Most recently, Roger was the housing director at a large regional nonprofit managing housing operations and development while advocating for progressive supply-side solutions to housing scarcity. His background is a staff person for state and local elected officials, work in the nonprofit sector at a sustainability think tank and in political campaigns, as well as in the public health field, have culminated in his work for Seattle for Growth, a housing and advocacy organization pushing for more housing supply at all levels of income in Seattle. Roger is one of the most adroit deep thinkers on what may be the most talked about topic on the Seattle street, regardless of your income level. So stick around. You're going to find this discussion fascinating. We'll explore a unique and trenchant explanation of how some of the economic polarization we see in Seattle has happened. We have homeless encampments as well as $2,000 per square foot condominiums. How did we get here? An explanation of whether government or free markets are best suited to address housing needs, especially around affordability and a vision how might we overcome the current housing affordability crisis. Hey, Roger. Hey, nice to see you, Edward. Good to see you. Um, so how long have you lived here in Seattle? I've lived here since, oh gosh, now it's been 25 years. Okay, mm-hmm. and where did you come from? Albuquerque, New Mexico. Oh, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I met you, like it was like at first a couple decades ago. I remember we talked, it was near Seattle U. And do you remember we had lunch? Yeah. I was looking at the real estate world, and yeah, that was before the big crash. Yeah. And you were exploring your career path and looking at real estate, wanted to talk. And and also, I think that you were looking for sort of the path forward that aligned with your passions and interests. Right. Which I really admire. And I was really struck by your intelligence and your passion. At that time, if you can think back, what was your vision sort of for Seattle, or how did you intend to make a difference? Well, at that time, I had been working in uh, public health and and I was kind of freed from that that job, which had taken up a lot of my mental energy and was uh, focused on tobacco prevention and something I'd never done anything about at all. I sort of stumbled into it. And I was looking back at the at urban planning, urban development, real estate. And at that time, I think I felt as though what was needed was bring was a an effort to bring together the development community, business community to advocate for more housing density. And I don't think I was thinking of it in terms of free market. I was thinking of it more in terms of an urban form issue, kind of a planning issue of we need to put more people on smaller pieces of land because it was more it's more efficient and more uh, conducive to the kinds of values that I think were are important for cities to have. So it was a different kind of approach, but I did see at that time a need for people that produced housing and financed housing and dealt in housing to 
have a better voice of advocacy around the density issue. And I got into this whole thing back in the 90s. When I, when I grew up in Albuquerque, it was a very spread out kind of cul-de-sac kind of a, a world where the lines were very uh, horizontal and very flat. And I always gravitated towards uh, more vertical or uh, urban forms, you know, building tall buildings, you know, more dense, um, highly populated, uh, diverse architecture. And so I just kind of had that kind of bias when I came to Seattle. And at that time in the 90s, when I was a neighborhood person advocating in the neighborhood planning process and through my work at the city and, and on into the first part of the last decade, it was, it was more about urban form and planning and how do you create spaces and places that people want to go and congregate. And it was, it was more about Kevin Lynch, mm-hmm. um, who was one of the people that I read that has meant a lot to me, kind of one of the seminal thinkers in urban planning. And it wasn't about economics and it wasn't about housing or affordable housing or anything like that. It, that became the issue because I think what I saw was the major stumbling block to doing what I felt we needed to do in terms of urban form was the issue of um, affordability and that issue coming up again and again and again. And I, I concluded right about the time that we were talking in, in that era that if we didn't address that issue, we would never be able to get to that groovy, you know, let's talk about urban form and what's the coolest urban form because we'll, we're always going to be fighting over how much does that apartment cost? <laughs> so in a way, like you need a form to have to, to discuss before we can even have conversation about it, right? There right. needs to be urban, urbanity and form. Yeah. And I mean, I think we've, we've, we live in it, but yet there's a kind of – Seattle's in this kind of twilight or we're giving up the notion of being a small town, mid-sized city and looking at becoming a big city – and that's a real difficult thing for people around here. And so the price discussion, the, the, the affordability issue has become a proxy or a battleground for all the other social, cultural issues, economic issues that, sur- that surround a change from going from medium size to a big city. Got it. And, and that's why that is such a white hot issue in this community. Got it. Well, another interest that you've you know had over the years has been public relations and the, sort of the influencing public relations. And so I'm just curious where that comes from. Well, I mean, the it's been really strange to watch it change because, like I said, originally it was all about density. You know, it was all about like how many people can you put on a you know per, per square acre, and that battle was more about urban form, and then it shifted. Um, and the message that I had back then was uh, density is people, you know, kind of playing off the Soylent Green thing of, you know, Soylent Green is people. Density is people was a message that I, I pushed hard in, in 10, 11, 12, because what I was trying to say in terms of communication was that it's not about a building. You know, the building is just an afterthought. It's the people that are inside the building that are going to be your neighbors, your friends, your eyes on the street, your customers, your the people you're going to spend most of your life with going into the coffee shop. I mean, it's about the people. It's the, forget about the building. The building's just, you know, it'll, it'll age, it'll change. And I think that was our major focus in that period was you've got to stop worrying about the form and shape and size of the building and remember what's, it's a, cont- a container for people and mm-hmm. people's lives. And then it, it shifted um, into this, well, it's too expensive or, 
greedy developers want more revenue from the rentals or we're squeezing out people of color and it, it became more economic and social. Um, and now it's not so much about density anymore. It really isn't. What's it about? I think it's about the economic transformation of the city. So Got it's it. become about economics. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also social and cultural issues related to race um, mm -hmm. that that is now the dominant frame that we're in. And how does that show up? In the discussions? Well, it shows up in, in unfortunately, a lot of red herrings about, you know, as, as I, you know, it, the problems we have are, are more complicated than they really are, or we've made them more complicated. The, the issue is really simple. Um, for all the reasons that I got into this about Urban Forum and, and the values system that I think cities promote and, and uh, encourage, which is more proximity between people. And we've also had like the climate change, like a lot of different yeah. issues that in 20 years that have zoomed up. Right. If you, want, if you believe in climate change, you know, de more, a denser urban form is, is, is more sustainable in terms of the water issues and drainage and lakes and streams. It's better, more efficient energy use. It produces more CO, uh, less CO2 per capita per, per person than other, other city, other forms. And then like, there's this part from, you know, in my Christian faith, I, the, the thing that Jesus said was love your neighbor as yourself. And you can't do that if you don't have a neighbor. So the idea of, of, of rich and poor riding the bus together, people of different economic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, all squished together in one place, I think encourages diversity and encourages a value system that, that looks more at opportunity rather than status and, and, and background. And, and I think that that's all very good, but you can't get there if you don't produce a lot of housing. So if you have minimal supply and huge demand to be in a place like that, then the price to live there is going to go up and up and up and up. So the solution... And it will affect people asymmetrically as the price yeah. goes up. And yeah. so the solution to, of that, that problem is to build, simply build more housing and, and create more opportunities as our sort of mission statement is, you know, build more housing in all neighborhoods of all types for people of all levels of income, you know, small things, big things, medium-sized things, communal living, whatever. Just let it all happen. Mm -hmm. the, the problem is, though, that, you know, what happens there is that this supply issue becomes complicated by, well, who gets to decide where that new unit goes and what it looks like and what, and, and the single-family homeowners have a kind of uh, limbic understanding of this is going to affect my equity. I bought this house 10 years ago. What's going to happen to its value? And newcomers are coming in and saying, I'm willing to pay more to live in this neighborhood because it's close to transit, but I can give up my car. And then you've got people that have lived here for a long time that are people of color that, that look at the change to their neighborhood and say, this isn't the place I grew up in. And all of that comes down to, you know, all of that gets reduced down to what is the price of an apartment quarter over quarter? Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's sort of not a vehicle that can handle all of that discussion. And so because it's a number um, and people like dashboards, you know, and they can look at quarter to quarter changes in aggregate or average price, they say, well, something's wrong. The prices are going up way too fast. And so that becomes the metric by which we look at all of these other issues of social and, and, and cultural change and economic change and, and uh, change in the urban environment. And it's just not adequate to really capture all of that. So the fact that prices may be going, isn't necessarily wrong? 
Well, it, it, price is simply a it, it's a it's an important indicator in the market that tells that gives people signals. So it says, you know, if if uh, a bologna sandwich costs a hundred dollars, that tells you that probably there's a lot of people that want bologna sandwiches and not a lot of bologna sandwiches. <laughs> if you want to make that price go down, the answer is make make more of those or find a substitute, something that people want equally as much but costs a lot less to produce. So in the marketplace, Price is a, a a signal for how to how people should behave and decisions they should make, and policymakers as well. But in Seattle, we don't see price as a indicator of supply and demand. It's it's a quantitative measure of greed. Moral. It's moral. Yeah, it's yeah. a moral judgment of when the price goes up. That's Bad. an that's an indicator of greed and um, inequity. Malfeasance is right, happening. Right. Yeah. Something. That, so if an apartment was nine hundred dollars and now it's thirteen hundred, that's an indicator of social injustice, of inequity, of racism, or whatever. And it's like, uh, no, it's not actually. <laughs> it, it simply represents a relationship in the marketplace between buyer and seller that has changed and is adverse to the consumer with less money. Um, but it's just a number. So Roger, so I remember this apartment. So basically apartments are a form of housing that was outlawed, right? right. As originally conceived by mm -hmm. Jim Potter and so forth. Right. So I would say when prices go down, it's also a signals greed and something bad is happening as well as when prices go up because the city decided to outlaw uh, the very small housing. And I remember the discussions and yeah. there was a, a project proposed in the Harvard Belmont district of Capitol Hill and I, I know a lot of realtor colleagues were just very against it who live there or whatever because, oh, it's going to be a big load of, you know, more cars, yeah, right? right, And nobody wanted that. And, and you're going to be cramming all these, you know, people in these rabbit hutches and charging them less money. But so when prices go down or up, it yeah, could be it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, pri so price is this kind of funny thing because it, uh, Frederick um, Hayek, who is a, a economist in the last century, was really brilliant about talking about price in the modern economy. And you know he he was the one that kind of articulated the, the the term spontaneous order, and what he meant by that was really the invisible hand that Adam Smith talked about, which is you just have all these actors in the marketplace, and prices are going up and down, and people. And so, in the case of apartments, a perfect example, you have people that want to live in the city close to urban amenities and transit and other great things, and then you've got a parcel of land that's only three thousand square feet. And you could build a 750-square-foot one-bedroom apartment and charge $2,100 for it. Or you could build 150-square-foot units, a lot more of them, and charge $750 per unit. And not only would you be more competitive, but you're providing access to something that is at a lower price for consumers. And then consumers are telling us, I'm willing to give up the square footage because I don't need it. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be right next to a light rail, right next to my job, school, all these other things I want, and I don't have to have a car. This is perfect. So that relationship happens in the market and reflects in unit size and in lot size and lot coverage and density and yield per square foot and all these other things. But what people see is something that's unusual, different, and they don't like it. And again, they're concerned about their equity. They're like, well... How come poor people have to live in such small spaces? And it's like they don't have to. They're choosing that because it's meeting their needs and investors are seeing higher yield per square foot. And so you're seeing this like mutually beneficial arrangement where I'm living in a 200-square-foot apartment 100 feet from light rail 
at a lot less than the guy down the street who's paying more for a bigger unit mm-hmm. that I don't want anyway and a parking spot I don't need. And the banker is looking at the yield on this project and going, wow, we're all making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So somehow that bothers people. Um, we have building code to protect health and safety. Yeah, right. But, but maybe what you're proposing is the government should not be involved in sort of these legislating, these sort of moral... Well, you know, the, the government and policymakers have what they have to work with, right? Which is an imperfect uh, system of, of trying to predict the future. And so they look at the world and they go, well, we don't want more losers than winners. And we don't want, you know, too many winners that are the wrong kinds of winners. And the losers should be the, not these kinds of people. And and so what you end up having is is a city council that that wants to choose winners and losers that are the right kinds of winners and the right kind of losers. And they want to program the economy in such a way that it all comes out perfectly sorted. Uh, one example that I give is, you know, the, the, not, the normative standard for housing affordability is 30% of gross monthly income. And you kind of look at that and go, well, where did that come from? Well, the, the Prussian social service system in the late 19th century that Otto von Bismarck set up established that you should pay one week's wages for your your housing, about 25%. That became the standard. And then in the 19, I think it was 1978, they changed it to 30%. They increased it by 5%. It wasn't based on any longitudinal studies or any sustained study of how people spend money. It was just 30% of the monthly income. That's affordable. Well, the real world doesn't work that way. And I've, I've joked with people and they, they do what I call in Seattle, lowering the blinds. It's when you ask a question that short circuits the structures in their brain. I've said to people at Office of Housing, so if every single person in the city of Seattle paid exactly 30% of their gross monthly income for housing, would the housing crisis be over? And then you can hear the, the, the blinds go down and then it's sort of like, is he gone yet? Because it's the fundamental question of that isn't the way people think about what's affordable. They look at it and go, this is a really great apartment. I'm paying half my income for it, but man, I'm so happy. Or I'm paying 10% of my income to live in my mom's basement, and I'm just bitter and upset and angry because I don't want to be here, right? It's not about a percentage of your income that indicates the utility or of, of where you are. And their pre- planning process doesn't account for that. Doesn't really measure happiness. Right. No. And so Hayek's point was you have to stand back and let the market play out, and then you start to see who's winning and who's losing, and then you can make adjustments. Mm-hmm. But but our council doesn't have the discipline or the, I think, the vision to be able to step back and let the housing economy play out and say, hey, people are choosing to live in these smaller units. We should encourage that uh, because you know, we'll get out of the way of that. Right. Instead, they choked it off. So, so we, we're mostly a city of renters. Um, and so is it also the city council, certain city council members have a political constituency and there is a, you know, you see on the right or the left, you have an opportunity to, of, of populism to generate political power through, yeah. you know, through sort of emotional arguments. Yeah. And know. I've been doing politics in various ways for my, almost my whole life. And one of the things you learn very quickly is that the people that show up are people that are unhappy with the current system. People that are happy with it are going about their lives. Um, it's when there's a, a disutility or a, uh, a problem that people say, I'm going to go down to city hall and let them know what I think, or I'm going to write a letter or an email or make a call. Um, 
so the, the, the system tends to reflect who's in the room and politicians being psychologically predisposed to want to be liked tend to respond to negativity and positivity more or less like a child. You know, if you, if you encourage them to do something, they'll look back at you and say, is this what you want me to do? And if you, if you scowl at them and say, that's bad, they'll go, oh, I guess I shouldn't do this. And as smart is that, as the, is that the opposite of leadership? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think it's it's tough for these people. And um, you know, I think all nine of the folks are smart in their own world, and they can do the New York Times crossword puzzle and take a standardized test. And I don't think that they're stupid. But when they get into that that think of being a politician, responding to who shows up, they become childlike. Uh, there was a historian that talked uh, about people that went to parliament and they want political office in the same way they want birthday cake, not so they can make the world a better place to share it with other people, but so they can have it all to themselves. And the idea is the same with politicians. They don't, they don't want to share that or they don't want to make people unhappy. They want more cake. You know, mm -hmm. they want more reward for themselves. Mm -hmm. If they can change the world and be popular at the same time, great. But, but changing the world and being unpopular that's not a uh, a frame that they a frame of reference that they understand. So that drives the decision making process, unfortunately. And I don't know in in history where we've ever seen uh, too many people make it very far that start out by saying, "Well, I'm going to make you all unhappy for a period of time," <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and succeed. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know how to balance that exactly, but that's the reality we live in. So Seattle for Growth is a really bold name. Um, why did you choose? Because not everyone is for growth, right? Well, we, we did, and, and I, I liked it because it has the word for, and so much of what I have to do is be against things. Like I have to come out and say I'm against mandatory housing affordability. I'm against rent control. I'm against uh, you know getting rid of microhousing. And and I, I wanted something that was, you know, we are for we're for growth, we're for jobs, we're for opportunity, we're for innovation, we're for change, as opposed to all the things we were against. Mm -hmm. But it's the nature of this economy and this uh, political environment that uh, we have to be against a lot of things. And have you had wins? Is, it, is this an incremental process or something that's more measurable uh, in a you know tangible short-term way? Yeah, when I look back at the last thing I did, tobacco, the, the Surgeon General's report came out in, I think, 1964. In, in Washington state, we passed a comprehensive, what they called a smoking ban in public places in 2005. So that's roughly 40 years. Today, no one would think of lighting up a cigarette in a bar. It just doesn't even compute. Yeah. And that took a long time and it took a lot of effort and energy and it did, so it didn't happen overnight. And so I think to some degree, whether it's, you look at women's suffrage, which took 100 years. You know, it, it didn't happen overnight. Um, the civil rights movement, slavery ended in 1864. It wasn't until 19, 1964, 1864 and 1964 they signed the Civil Rights Act. These things take time. And uh, I try to remind myself that, that it, it's, it's not just incremental. It's almost sort of glacial sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and very unfair mm -hmm. in the way that change happens. It mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily reward the, the right ideas immediately. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to, to be, be resigned to the fact that you'll never know how it turns out, right. <laughs> which is interesting.
earlier in the show, you mentioned that Seattle has historically and hopefully been more of a meritocracy mm-hmm. rather than a, mm-hmm. um, you know, as opposed to a place where people have opportunity based on who they are, mm-hmm. um, that you could come here and there was opportunity. Right. Um, I, and I think that it has been that. That's what attracted me and, you know, someone like Bill Gates, yeah. you know, returned to here probably right. for a reason mm-hmm. and, and created opportunity for others. So I'm curious about sort of the interplay between your faith and the kind of mission of creating more an opportunity-based culture right. rather than one that's based yeah, on... Yeah, I, I wrote a, a blog post a long time ago called Where Would Jesus Live? And and I I, I actually started out by referring to um, the play uh, by uh, Sartre, uh, No Exit, where he's locked in a room with two other people and they're locked in there for all eternity. And, and it's, it's sort of like... I think there's a, a perception that being having that kind of proximity to people is awful. Like we're an individualistic culture and society in many ways. We want to be independent. We want to be the Marlboro man to go mm-hmm. back to the tobacco thing, riding out on the open plains by ourselves. But mm-hmm. that isn't really the American myth at all. The American myth and the American sentiment and underlying it is 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 more consistent with the idea that, you know, we our neighbor's in trouble. We all show up and put out the fire our neighbor needs help. We go raise the barn, you know, to use the old Western sort of example. And to me, the, the the Christian faith has always been pretty hard to figure out. Like all faiths, it's complicated historically. It's all got all sorts of crazy stuff attached to it. But when you look at what Jesus said, he said, you know, they, they asked him, what is, when you boil it all down, Jesus, what does it come to? And he said, well, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's pretty problematic because how do I love myself and how do, how do I love my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? And I don't like my neighbor. And so I think that, I think that ur- the, the urban form and the urban environment encourages a kind of daily confrontation with discomfort that I think is important to developing and evolving as a human being because you, you end up seeing things you just don't like, you know? And, and the question is, are you going to embrace that learn more about it, figure it out. Why don't I like it? It forces you to ask yourself, well, why does that make me so upset? Um, And I think that that is key to why I argued that the urban form is better than the suburban form. The suburban form tends to to say, you're going to be comfortable all the time. You're going to have a quick drive to work. You go into a garage, you ride an elevator, you get in your office, you do your work, you get an elevator, go back home. You never have to really interact with anybody you don't want to. And I think that the city tends to do the opposite. And that's what I think you're seeing in, in, in our, our public policy is where a lot of discomfort, which I look at and say, when the discomfort gets higher, that's a good place we want to be. Wow. You know, uh, so racism is sort of core to like the white flight to the suburbs in sort of the 70s. Yeah, I right. Think... It was a way to not for for affluent whites and middle class to be not uncomfortable with racism. Yeah, I think racism in and in, in of itself is a kind of um, self-selection in which we want to be around things we're familiar with. Because because anything that's different than us is is interesting, but it's also kind of scary. And so I think that we don't know how – as human beings, we're not particularly well-trained. Uh, you know, we don't learn in school, I don't think. Um, we learn cognitive process rather than – reconciling our fears and anxieties and our interests and our curiosity in a, in a systematic way. It's more like, well, 
if something makes me feel bad, I want to avoid it. And also like with like uh, utilitarianism, don't we seek pleasure and avoid pain? Yeah. So it's part of, it yeah. is, we are kind of wired to, yeah, we're very to not be it, just uncomfortable. It's yeah. a very human thing, which is why Jesus's message was so controversial at God. the time. And all these people that, that have come since, you know, any, anybody that's sort of a prophet or whatever is always sort of saying, no, I'm going to just say some stuff and do some things that are going to make you really unhappy with the idea that this is to instruct you that there's something to leaning into that anxiety that you should be doing. And so in the city, I look at it and say, if, if a lot of people moving in in small apartments makes you upset, maybe you ought to, you know, go and figure out more about that before you oppose it. But that's a lot to ask. And politicians aren't going to get into a room and say, you know, uh, go ahead and, yeah, I know you're upset, but we're going to dial it up. We're going to make it worse. So let's talk about homelessness then, because that's sort of the supreme discomfort for someone who does have a home, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's the, um, apart from yeah. the housing affordability, there's the discussion, you know, there's 90 tents across from an apartment building owned in Fremont. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People are moving out. Yeah. And I think that, I think that I've said this before is that there's something about seeing people that are homeless that is threatening in, in, a, in a weird way. It makes, it makes a person feel like, I don't want to see that because it reminds me of my own fragile state right. and I don't want to look at it. And that leads to make it go away and then it's dangerous, it's hazardous. And and it is. It's it's not a healthy situation to be in for anyone. Um, but I have a kind of a weird view because I look at it and go, if, if, if a person or a group of people are able to put together themselves enough to organize a tent encampment, then they've at least indi- they've at least showed us that they've got some ability to organize themselves and take care of themselves. It's housing. Yeah, it's some kind of, I call Self-made it housing. improvised housing. Yeah. And that needs to be leveraged. It doesn't mean that we just sort of say, oh, well, that's fine for them. It's more like you go to the folks and you say, you've gotten this far, you've got yourself this organized, what can we do to leverage you into the next iteration of what needs to happen, whether it's low and no barrier shelter or, you know, some kind of subsidized housing or whatever. The problem is, is that we've made it into a, you either go into a subsidized unit that doesn't exist or- Because we just don't have enough of them? We just don't have enough of them or, or you go to a shelter where there's all sorts of rules and stuff that you don't want, that they've already told us that you don't, they don't want to do. Or we're just going to sweep it away. So it, it, we failed in learning the free market lesson, which is, as Hayek would point out, I think, what the folks are telling us that are camping is, hmm, this is a market-based solution to a pro- housing problem and a shelter issue. So if you want to fix it, you either need to lower the barriers to the shelters, you know, if you want them to go there, or you need to create some other incentive-based program that's going to because they're telling you the price is too high to be in a shelter. Wow. And that's, that, that is an indicator right there. They're but, also saying that they don't want to be homeless. They're creating homes for themselves, which is yeah. sort of a different narrative than the dominant one, which is that these people don't have homes. But what you're saying is, no, they do have homes. It's just maybe not the home that you would want. Yeah. And I've re- I wrote a post called Home is Where My Car Is, where I talked about there are people living in their cars. And, and we, we look at that and we say, that's bad. And, and it's, it's not just it's bad because of their economic situation, et cetera, et cetera. I understand that. But it's more like you should be living in a house or an apartment or whatever. Living in your car, that's just bad. And it, 
So there's a stigma associated with that. That it that and and my point in the in the post was a person living in their car. You know, the last thing you want to do is like tow it away. So you need to somehow figure out what's going on in that situation and how do we ameliorate that, as opposed to let's get rid of it and put the person in a unit. Well, person may not be ready for a unit, or they may already have a unit that they got out of. I mean, units are not the solution. It's more like how does that person solve the problems they have in front of them to keep moving forward? And right. what we've been doing is we've been towing away those cars, which I think it just that just that person's now going to be in a tent. Use, and using your sort of kind of platform, it's also removing a housing unit. Yeah, it's reducing supply. What these people are doing is they're creating additional supply in an improvised fashion, which again, using the price system, is telling you prices are too high, right? Mm -hmm. Because if they could they could get a hotel room for twenty dollars a night, they'd probably do that. Mm -hmm. But we don't have enough. There's not enough supply. Mm -hmm. So this kind of you know it, it's it, it's counterintuitive to most Seattleites that that when you see a problem like that, that it's part of the price system. Right. Uh, that just intuitively doesn't strike people as right. But I think that's ultimately what I'm saying is, you know, price is important and it does indicate to you people are making decisions and right. they're telling you something and you should listen to it and we should listen to it. So Roger, let's stay in this realm of discomfort for a minute because it's mm -hmm. incredibly fertile. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about who is uncomfortable um, demographically and we have two audiences for our podcast. It's people that have been here, kind of old timers, mm -hmm. like myself, who are experiencing vertigo because the level of change far yeah. exceeds like our ability to assimilate it. And then we have another audience that are new arrivals, both high and low economic levels, but who are who don't feel that there is, you know, typically a problem with all the change. In fact, they don't even know that there is any. They're just they came here because the, there's beautiful mountains and lakes. And yeah, exactly. An opportunity, yeah. right? Whether it's cultural or economic or whatnot. So. That is a question, is who's most uncomfortable and yeah. why. And you've, you've uh, gotten to what, uh, there's a, a firm called Quinn Thomas that did some quantitative research and qualitative research on this, and they came to the same exact conclusion. There's two different groups. There's the people that have been here a while, and there's sort of the people that have come here in the last 10 years. Both love the region. They love the diversity. They love the environment, the mountains, the access to all this great stuff. Um, they're diverse demographically and 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 uh, uh, economically, and but they're all saying the same things about Seattle. I love it. I love you know the culture, the diversity, everything about it. The difference between the two groups is that the the long old the people who've been here longer have seen the change from when they first got here, and it appears to be rapid and, and incoherent. It's sort of just all the time, everywhere stuff's coming up and going down, and they they've they've indicated that. Price is a factor there where it's it's just gotten too expensive, right? And they've they're concerned about the equity in their home. And then you've got the people that are been here in the last ten years. You say, has it changed a lot? No, not much. Is it going too fast? Not really. Is it too expensive? No. I'm I expect to pay more to live in such a great place. Are you going to stay here a long time? I'm not sure. I might leave. Mm -hmm. And the the older group is like, I'm here forever. Mm -hmm. So so you take those two groups. And there's some common, common thread there in why they're here, but there's a big difference in the way they view change in the region and, and their attitude towards it as being, you know, hey, a new noodle shop just went in where there was an old house. Great. You know, another group's going to say, 
gosh, you know, things are just going, change, you know, another mm-hmm. noodle shop, like mm-hmm. I can't stand it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that friction, again, gets played out in the, in the housing price discussion and affordability because it's the only way people can talk about it. But when you kind of push it aside, you find out that the old timers are worried about, I just want to know that when I retire, I can sell this house. And the newcomers are saying, I'm willing to pay 40% of my income to live in such a great spot. Um, yeah. So it, 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 there's a bit of talking past one another in these groups. Mm-hmm. And I think the council doesn't have a quite their ear tuned to that dissonance. And they're reacting to the, dis- the expression of discomfort amongst both groups in the same way. So another question that was, I had a client recently that just said, you know, all my friends, I have a diverse socioeconomically diverse group of friends. They either make less than $25,000 a year or more than 150,000 renters and buyers. Is the middle class getting sucked out of the city? And I've always had a intuitive problem with the term middle class because uh, it, it, it assumes that- I guess people that make more than 25,000 and yeah, less than, you yeah, know. Right, there's a quantitative measure of it. You can sort of, you can sort of look at zero to- 70,000 or whatever the income is. And you can kind of, and the way they do it typically is AMI or poverty level or whatever. But I I get what people mean by it. Um, It's, it's people, it's, it tends to be people like me. That's how people, I think in my life going all the way back to when I was a kid, when people said middle-class and I grew up and went to college with people of diverse economic backgrounds, I always felt like what, what people mean by middle-class is people like me, people that aren't really poor, but people that aren't, don't, aren't really rich. And it's a qualitative assessment. And so I think that that's part of the problem is that 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 feeling squeezed is more about there's a lot of people that aren't like me on the lower end. There's a lot of people that aren't like me on the upper end. Mm -hmm. And that makes me uncomfortable. So isolation. And I'm in the middle, right? Like I'm feeling pressure from so much poverty and I'm so much wealth and I'm in the middle class. And, And I think that that's not a real thing. Economically, I think the fact is is that we're a pretty affluent uh, city, and I think we're, we're we're getting more diverse, not as diverse as, as a, a lot of places, um, you know. But but I think that that anxiety that we're we people like me are getting squeezed out fascinating is the the thing that the council hears, and so they react to that, and they, they and so people in the middle tend to say, take more money from that rich guy and give it to that poor guy over there while I watch and pat myself on the back. Mm-hmm. And the council loves that. Mm-hmm. They love to be redistributive in income and, and wealth by identifying people that are seem, seem to be rich Got it. and giving it to people that seem to be poor, which ameliorates, weirdly, people in the middle that are watching it happen. Okay. And, and they are the, the audience for it. Because the mm-hmm. rich people are like, what does it mean to be rich? I, I, mm-hmm. You get to a certain point of income and it loses meaning and right. poverty... Everything's a challenge. People in the middle are okay, mm-hmm. but but their main source of discomfort is this seeing these other groups. Yeah, seeing these other groups impinge on them in different ways. So, so you know. So let's talk about the Amazon head tax. That mm-hmm. was you know legislation proposed to help redistribute funds from corporations to affordable housing. What? Yeah, and I mean, I my view on taxes is that they do three things. One, they incentivize and disincentivize behavior. So if you think about the tax on cigarettes. We want people to smoke less. So we, we put a big tax on it. Then we take the money and pay for healthcare. Um, it's intended to provide things that the market won't provide efficiently. So like a park, 
you know, if you buy a piece of land for a million dollars, you're not going to be able to rationalize just doing nothing with it and letting people play on it. So tax revenue can be used for the common good to acquire that land and, and purpose it for public use. And then third, it, it redistributes wealth. Um, the market redistributes wealth too. Um, it does it um, much more unevenly and unpredictably and spontaneously. So what a tax system does is it says, we want to redistribute that wealth over there to that area over there. Uh, so it's redistributive. But people have gotten on my case and said, well, you're a communist because you want to redistribute wealth. And I said, no, the market redistributes wealth already. Taxes just do it in a deliberate, coherent fashion mm -hmm. on a timeline that we that is shorter and, and more predictable. You know, that dollar over there is going to that person over there. Got it. So the head tax to me was sending the message, if you use those three criteria, it's saying jobs are bad, you know, because we want less of them, we're going to tax them. It generated revenue, but it was going to go towards some unknown number of units somewhere off in the future. And in terms of redistribution, it was very, it's very inefficient because you're taking dollars from, from a company like Amazon, putting it through some city laundering process and then redistributing at some point in the future to who and for what. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was a stupid idea. Um, I said I would support it if and only the money was taken from Amazon and immediately redistributed to cost burden households using that normative standard. Got it. So if somebody's $200 short a month on mm -hmm. rent, Amazon can build a, an app where they go in and they scan in their check, paycheck, and their rent receipt, and their bank account, and their routing number, and the algorithm runs that calculation and just automatically redistributes, just nice. gives you 250 bucks, mm -hmm. or, and pays your rent, or just gives you the money. If they did that, I'd support the, the Amazon to the <laughs> jobs tax, because in that case, it would, it would eliminate the cost burden in the city of Seattle. Mm. Suddenly, the cost burden would be gone, and we could say, well, We'd, we've, we, we got rid of that. Now all these people that are paying too much in rent, they get this cash subsidy immediately from, from the bank account of Amazon to their bank account. No government involvement, no overhead, just boom, it just happens. Is that a different message than to Amazon that it would send normatively? I mean, I think they wouldn't like it and they would oppose it. But I would, if I was going to persuade them of it, I'd say, look, this is extremely efficient. And it means that it means that your tax dollar that you're being assessed, uh, I would say it shouldn't be assessed on job creation, but it should be assessed on something else. Uh -huh. I, you know, something we don't want them to do. Um, maybe, uh, you know, uh, you have to come up with something you want to dis discourage them uh, of doing. And you'd have to balance that with the other things like the public good and the redistributive urge. But these things all have to be balanced. You know, the problem is a tax, if it works well, should become obsolete. You know, because if it's taxing something you don't want, eventually you tax it out of existence. Got it. <laughs> and then you have to go back and find something else. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to put in taxes like taxes on income, and it's never going to go away. Mm -hmm. um, it was intended as a kind of, let's raise some revenue, and now we're never going to see income tax go away. No. So, yeah, I'm not against taxes. I just think they need to be done well, and that one was not done well. And you're against MHA? Mandatory again, housing affordability. Yeah. So again, let's just run through this checklist because I think your perspective. MHA is a is a tax, uh, a form of taxation. Again, it's inefficient and, and and redistributes very poorly wealth. What it does is it is it taxes per square foot new development, which ends up 
boosting the cost of the of the product, which means renters have to pay more to cover that cost because that's where the money in rental projects comes from is from the renters. That's the cash flow. And then in order to, uh, you're, then you're going to see a wider disparity between ratio between income and, and rents over time. To compensate for that, what are we going to do? We're going to raise the MHA fees. So it's a, it's a, perpetual motion machine of inflation and inflation hurts poor people. Mm -hmm. You know, when you have a dollar and it becomes 85 cents, you have a million dollars. That's, you're going to feel that a lot less than someone that has 10. So inflation is our enemy uh, when it comes to poverty. And, and uh, that means more supply. That means more opportunity and diversity in the economy is what we need, not less. So the city has really put a lot of restrictions on Airbnb with the sharing economy. It's not necessarily more uh, housing units, but it's diverse uses of housing yeah. units. And, Air, you know, so the Airbnbs have popped up, but the city council, or the city is now restricting those. Is that a good thing? Yeah, no, thing? I mean, I think, again, there, there, there's a, you know, let, let's be real about this. The, the, the people behind the Airbnb thing are, are labor unions that, that work in hotels. Now, again, their self-interest is we would rather have those people staying in hotels. I've never used Airbnb. I prefer a hotel. That's me. Mm-hmm. Some people love the Airbnb thing because it fits into that sharing economy. And I look at it and go, look, we're not going to pick winners and losers between hotels and Airbnb. People are going to make that choice and we should make an abundance of all of it. Mm -hmm. Now, the claim is that, well, you're repurposing affordable rental housing for Airbnb. And I don't, I've never seen any evidence of that that's uh, sustainable and in the end, what you're doing is you're 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 really going to take um, a unit that would have rented for twenty five hundred dollars a month and put it back into the rental market instead of it being rented, you know, twenty days out of the year to people using it as as a hotel essentially. So I think they're they're just they're responding to anxiety amongst hotel workers, which is understandable mm -hmm. about a new industry that they are concerned is going to take away their job opportunities. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's real. And to the extent it is, the, that happens in an economy. So it seems to me like kind of looking through the philosophically, the thread of all of your thinking and action, a word that I would use is to describe it as abundance. I think you are looking for win-win solutions where one person, everybody can share in a positive outcome. Yeah. And I mean, I think the example of that that's counterintuitive for people is, is housing is a great example of that because intuitively if people experience the world like, I call it the Galileo problem. You know, it's Galileo. You know, Copernicus did the math and said the math works better if the Earth is going around the sun spinning on its axis. Galileo looked in his telescope and kind of said, yep, he's right. And the bishops in the church said, I don't feel anything moving, Galileo. And the sun, you know, rises in the, the east and it sets in the west. So my, my experience of the world doesn't align with what you're saying is the truth. And people look at housing the same way. They see a lot of new housing going in. It's really expensive by their standard. And so their view is we build more of it, it gets more expensive, which is completely wrong, but understandable. And so abundance does create opportunity and it creates competition between producers, which benefits the consumer. Got it. So the more competition between people building different kinds of housing means people with less money can are not competing with each other they're competing for the people with less money got so it okay that's, 
Yeah. Well, great. So there's a lot of negativity, a lot of positivity. Paint me a picture. You know, what is your vision, say, in five or 10 years, uh, where, you know, on an optimistic note, where could we be as a city? <laughs> Maybe you could get back to um, thinking about urban design versus just producing housing. Yeah, but sometimes I think I'd be on my, on, my, uh, on my island that I bought from coming up with some billion-dollar idea. I think five to 10 years from now, I think we're going to see the business cycle turn down and we're going to see the heat come off this argument about housing affordability because we're going to shift towards uh, dealing with an economic downturn. And so that's going to kind of wipe out a lot of the, the arguments over wealth and prosperity versus how, you know, uh, poor people and stuff. And I think we're going to be focused on how does this economy recover? And then I hope during that period- What are the drivers of that? Of the economy? The shift, yeah. I think in this particular Seattle economy, we will be insulated by the next downturn because Amazon is such a diverse business and we're so reliant on that. So unlike when we were hooked to Boeing and Boeing would stop production because you know it was a manufacturing business and we kind of felt that throughout the whole economy, Amazon sells everything from paper clips to whatever. Storage. Yeah. I mean, they're doing everything. So the sectors that it covers are everything. So it's not going to feel uh, that hit the same way manufacturing would. So I think we're not going to feel it as much. I think the, the the heat will come off. It'll cool down. And I think that we'll weather that. Um, and I think that oddly we'll probably have some inflation that will continue during that period because people will still be coming here and say, oh, things in Topeka are terrible. We'll go to Seattle. Housing price inflation? Or? Yeah, well, yeah, just inflation in general. general. Well, at the same time, we still experience some downturn in jobs. So it'll be that weird um, inflationary thing where we have unemployment but still have inflation. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be really frustrating to people because they're still going to see prices going up, but they're going to lose their job. Um, I think we'll get through that. Of course we will. And and what will happen is during that period, what I hope is intellectually that we'll have the time to identify people that are interested in running for office, that have some experience in the business community, that have opened a business. You know, somebody like you that has – I'm not nominating you, but people that have that kind of um, – they've started a business, they've they've run it, they've seen it fail, they've closed it, they've sold it. They know how it kind of works intuitively. They understand the – the, the business cycle. And then when things start to come back, we'll maybe have a few of those people in office that can understand it. Okay, it's getting hot again. Demand's going up. Supply's not keeping up. Let's take away some rules. Let's take away some regulation. Let's ride this baby to the top. And I hope that that's what happens and that in 10 years, we look back and we have a council that is composed of people that are like the council in the 90s and late 80s was with couple of business owners, some people that, you know, were not just activist types. Mm -hmm. I mean, the problem is we, we're getting uh, activists that have never uh, run a business or they're running as an activist and mm -hmm. we're going to sock it to the rich. And, mm -hmm. and I think we hopefully at that time will have some uh, leadership that is uh, cognizant of how the business cycle works. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Well, Scott Shapiro, our last guest, hope for the same thing. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit more. <laughs> He's actually heavy. on our board, so it, yeah. you're you're batting a thousand so far as, as far as guests. We're all <laughs> we're Roger. Happy. Well, well, hopefully we get Kasama Swan on here and some yeah, some should. other opinions. Yeah, a place that matters to you in Seattle. 
place that matters to me, I think, is my coffee shop that I go to. Um, Want to share the secret? Yeah, it's it's Bar Joe. It's uh, it's a it's a there's a couple uh, Bar Joe and Joe Bar, which are a sort of uh, twin sister uh, coffee shops. Same owner, great guy named Wiley, who I tell him the secret to his success is he hires great people. You know, they know your name when you come in. They, it's a third place, as uh, mm-hmm. as it's been called, where you know they they uh, they know just enough about you that that you can have a relationship with them, but but you still have your sense of privacy, and they don't really know who you are. You don't really know who they are, but you meet in this kind of moment of sharing that uh, that daily routine. And I think that, that those those two spots um, location uh, those it's Capitol Hill. Got it. Yeah, and there's been other ones in the past. You kind of bounce. You know how coffee shops are when you're into that. You, yeah. you know, you go to different ones, and all of a sudden you're at a different one yeah. for five years, and then you switch. But, They're my offices too. I yeah, get it. exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, great. Well, and then did you bring in anything physical to share with us? Today? I ha- I. I Realize that I carry these pencil mechanical pencils around. Um, it's a Graph Gear one thousand, and they come in uh, three, five, seven, and nine millimeter sizes. And um, I think it's because I, I've always wanted to be a writer. That that I've always lo- and it, and maybe sort of a, an architect as a kid. Um, these pencils are always sort of something I carry with me everywhere, and I don't necessarily use them all the time because I'm always on a keyboard. Mm-hmm. But I like having, not just having a keyboard, but having a high quality mechanical pencil sort of to offset that technology reliance. You know, it's sort of yeah. like I can always, I can always go back to writing by hand. Right. So that's. Well, you, they're a beautiful design too. Yeah, that's so my we'll thing. get a photograph and throw yeah. that on the website today. So thank you, Roger. You are just so challenging intellectually. It's, it's really nice to meet a superior intellect. Um, well, that's a nice way of saying it. It's Other so people true, have though. a different, a different well, way of putting yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you want to learn more about Roger, you can visit seattleforgrowth.org, but also read his blog posts on Forbes.com. They're just fascinating. The most recent one had to do with um, eliminating price um, and looking at an Amazon sort of based right. distribution of happiness. If all of our needs were met immediately by the algorithm, yeah. So in our next episode, Jim Goldberg and Allison Jeffries of Red Propeller, a real estate marketing and branding company, will be joining us to share how newly designed communities such as Seabrook on the Washington coast, Pike Motorworks on Capitol Hill, Luma Condominiums on First Hill, while they actually work in 85 cities across the country now, how they get new identities and how these new identities impact the people who choose to live there. Thank you for listening to EK On The Go. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or most other places where podcasts can be found. And to learn more, visit our website, ekreg.com, and you'll find a link to both of those places. Send your questions or requests to Edward K at EKREG as well. And if there's a place that matters to you in Seattle, tell us about it. We'd love to learn. As always, thank you for turning in. Mm-hmm.